This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Yes, ah, steam whistle blowing there. It's, uh, it's a rainy, a rainy old night in the Pacific Northwest, and what a perfect night to be talking about history. I don't know about doing this show. I think about doing this show in July, and that seems kind of unusual. Maybe I'll take the summer off if I make it that far. This is episode number eight. They said it wouldn't last. We're here eight weeks into the longest-running live radio show, only live radio show about Pacific Northwest history. I'm Felix Bunnell. This is Cascade of History. Uh, we're here for the next hour. We're actually live in the studio. In case you haven't been here before, it's Space 101.1 FM, a community radio station here in Seattle. It's at the old Magnuson Park, the main gatehouse, which is where the sergeant-at-arms had his quarters back when this was a Navy base from... And I, don't, this, I think this part was built in the 40s or the 50s, but the Navy base was here from the early 20s to the early 1970s. And uh, this is a historic place, perfect place to sit and talk about history. We draw in people by telephone all over the Pacific Northwest. Our signal, our FM signal, goes over much of North Seattle, crosses over to the lake to my hometown. I don't live there now, but my hometown of Kirkland, Washington. I imagine people are tuning in over there. Um, in fact, if you're listening tonight, I would love to hear from you because I, I give the email address every week and then I sit and there's just cobwebs in my email inbox. But I'm looking for more topic ideas. I'm looking for people who can talk about interesting things about Northwest history because that's what we cover. Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, maybe even into Montana, essentially the old Oregon country, that, that sort of disputed territory that the British and the Americans you know, occupied indigenous land, of course, and then battled over it to take possession. The Americans, they did in, in 1846. You know the story. Oregon Territory came first, and they split off Washington Territory. Then they split off Idaho Territory. And British Columbia, of course, was a whole other thing. But we're all sort of part of the same region. And the history is definitely interconnected. So I'd love to speak to somebody about Southern Oregon history um, or Oregon coastal history. So if you're listening tonight or on the podcast, because we do podcast this, but it's more fun to listen to it live, I think, um, send me an email. It's cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Looking for guest ideas, looking for topic ideas. Um, we'll be doing this every Sunday night until they say I can't do it anymore, and I don't know when that's going to be. So um, anyway, do, uh, do send me an email if you have ideas, or you might be the person. Suggest yourself as a guest. Don't be shy. Um, we like to tell stories about history. We like to talk about events that happened in the past, the distant past, the recent past. Um, tonight we have, um, we're scheduled to have a couple of guests, and I'm still waiting to hear from um, one of my two guests who I don't, might end up being a no-show, but fortunately um, I was able to get in touch with David Benko. I'm going to see if David, David's on the line right now. Let's see if he's there right now. David Benko, are you there? Can you, can you hear my voice? I can hear your voice. Oh, great. You're live on Cascade of History on uh, Space 101.1 FM, live from Sandpoint Naval Air Station. Well, Magnuson Park, anyway, in Seattle. And I was okay. just uh, just mentioning that we had a had another guest scheduled along with you, but I, that first guest it seems to be kind of a no-show, so we'll have to figure out what happened there. Uh, 
we'll maybe we'll have him back on another another episode. But I figured since I've known you, I think since I think about 1975. <laughs> yeah. What 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 year did you start kindergarten? <laughs> well, kindergarten was 1973 at Ben Franklin Elementary. But I def, I have a very vivid memory of being in. I think it was second or third grade. It was a snow day. And I was I, I was putting I was making a little tiny snowman, and you were some kind of a playground monitor, and you said, "Hey, you can't make snowballs or something." <laughs> do, you, were, do you remember having some kind of official role and being out of like a playground, or were you just a just a busybody? I can't remember. Probably, probably I was a busybody. All right, and then I think our sisters were friends too. Your sister and my sister. Um, uh, they were. I believe yeah. they were Girl Scouts together. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. So we're we're talking old Ro- Rose Hill history today. But don't worry if you're listening to the show. That's not the only thing that David Benko and I are going to talk about. Because David, you're the founder, the president. You're what's that? We're going to talk just about the good old days in Ben Franklin High School. I think that high. Ben Franklin Elementary. Yeah, that'd be with Miss Toyoji and yeah. Miss Dumond and uh, my senior year teacher, Miss Norris, and the librarian, uh, Miss Ashley. She was the best, best librarian at Ben Franklin Elementary. Well, all right, Dave, well, glad you could join us. We'll talk to you next time. Okay, no, just, just kidding. Thank you. Um, no, no, the reason that I wanted to have you on, and actually, I think I, I, I was being sincere when I traded messages with, messages with you earlier this week when I said that when I was envisioning having a Sunday night show where it's just me in this little room <laughs> talking to people around the Northwest about cool things about Northwest history, you were the one of the first people I thought would be cool to talk to you on a show like this. So my expectations are really high, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The bar for, okay, for what's that? I said, wonderful. Okay. If I wasn't nervous enough, now I have a step to raise the bar. No, you're fine. Because I, you know, you're... I think you and I, I hadn't talked to you for probably 20 years or 25 years when we got in touch about 10 years ago when you were telling me about the neon stuff that you do. Because um, to introduce you officially, I think you're the founder of the National Neon Sign Museum, which I'm not sure how many people know is in the Dalles, Oregon, right? Yeah, of all the strange places. Very cool. Now, how, tell, what, is, what is the National Neon Sign Museum? Tell us about that first, and we'll, we'll go back in time and talk about some of your earlier neon adventures a little bit later. But go ahead. What, what, is, the, what is the institution that you're in charge of down there in the Dalles? So um, it is a 501c3 not-for-profit, and we have one of the um, – so there, there are basically you – know, you don't want to offend anybody by saying there's you know, this many neon sign museums. There's, there's a battering of them um, increasingly across the country, but I would say that uh, most people know about the Boneyard Museum in Las Vegas. Um, in Cincinnati, Ohio is the American Sign Museum, and then we are what I would say the third – of those museums, a 501c3, the National Neon Sign Museum, and the collection. I started collecting. Uh, I started collecting when I was eight years old, and I started <laughs> neon. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm, I was a dork. Uh, I started collecting neon probably when I was around 16. And the one thing I would say, I've never collected beer signs. So really, I've collected storefront signs, neon clocks. I mean, honestly, it was neon clocks that I first got hooked on in that era um but but yeah so for for many many years and so the facility now down there which i haven't visited the the museum in the dalles yet you've been there for i think three or four years now or is it longer than that we we um took over the building in 2016 and the the city was about four months away from turning it into a parking lot it's a spectacular building that was built between 1910 and 1914 um, as an Elks Club, it's got three floors. It's got a floating floor on the ballroom, uh, main floor, and the basement will be having actually, we're just about to close for the season. Um, and this coming spring, we will be opening a full downstairs 
uh, with three classrooms, a four station working neon shop where we're going to do apprenticeships and demonstrations and a, and a new wraparound gallery down there as well. So we're um, a pretty cool museum. Uh, another big project that we've done sort of on the front end of that as well is started hanging antique signs on buildings outside. So they're not just in the building, but really they're in the more appropriate. They should be on buildings. Yeah, that's, this is on the exterior of the building you operate or other buildings there in the Dalles too? All around. The Dalles is kind of a small to mid-sized town, and they are going on buildings in town, outside. So it's a, a wow. free walking tour that people can do. That's cool. So, and how do the businesses, I mean, how do they sign up? Do you just go knock on the door and ask if they want to sign, or how do they how do you identify the locations? The first four that we put up was the, the um, former head of the Main Street Association, Don Warren here, um, actually was, was just going around and finding businesses that were willing to do it. And in the beginning, it was kind of like, ah, geez, I don't know if I want to have something like that on my building. <laughs> and as soon as the four of them went up, we're, we're filled with requests. Everybody wants to have an neon sign now on the building. So That's um, cool. we're not going to have problems moving forward with, with doing that. There, there are obviously codes and restrictions in this, in this town like any, but uh, for the most part, um, it, it's going to be fairly easy to get a lot more of them up, and I'm pretty excited about that. And is the, is the sign, like, in, of those first four, is the vintage sign have any relation to the, the location or the business or the sector of the economy, or is it just stuff that looks pretty? Or tell me about how you select which sign goes where. I, I think it was a little bit of that um, in, in that the, the four signs that we put up, probably the one that um, – I almost didn't buy it at the time at an auction, and I was really glad. I mean, as time went by, I was really glad I did. It is a, it's a 18-foot-tall Sears, Roebuck, and Company vertical sign, and it's with an original Claude Neon tag. It's got a tag um, production date of 1924, wow. which is really the dawn of neon in the United States, a very, very early sign. And it is on one of the largest buildings on the east end of town, um, and it's a very large vertical building, so it's a pretty cool vertical-looking sign on that building. Uh, and there's one that specifically faces the freeway. It's Dog and Suds, which was a Midwest um, <laughs> hot dog and root beer uh, location. And people from the East Coast know it very, very well. Cool. And um, it faces the freeway, so it's kind of a draw to the freeway. There's one just around the corner to us, which is a, a six-foot round uh, flying a gasoline sign flat on a building and it's very close to us. And then lastly, there's another one, Jefferson Hall, which came out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was a dance club in Milwaukee. Uh, it started in the 30s into the 40s. By the 50s, they were playing rock and roll. By the 60s, they were playing the early um, like psychedelic. Ike and Tina Turner were there. I heard the Grateful Dead played there. Hmm. And so it's a pretty cool vertical sign on, on another sort of taller building. So it they fit the building. They... You know, I mean, from an artistic standpoint, you want them to look like they're on a, on a location that they belong on. That makes sense, yeah. So is now, was this something, the Dalles, how, that seems like a pretty cool deal, and it seems like if you, if you do it right or if it grows, the Dalles becomes a destination for outdoor neon sign people, right? We, we are, the Dalles is becoming rapidly. I mean, honestly, we, we opened in 2019. Um, I'm not, there, there's a lot of really interesting things going on in this community, and, you know, we're one of them. And so there's a lot of draw coming here. And one of the big things that we have here, in fact, when we took on this project, we did not know um, the, 
the absolute amount of cruise ships that dock in this community. So they start in Lewis and Clarkson, Idaho. They make their way all the, all the way down the Columbia River to Astoria. And oh. so we get from six to eight cruise ships a week that dock um, three blocks from the museum. And that must be from what, like May to September? Or what's the season like? It, it'll, it'll start again in late February. Wow. And right now, right now, one of the cruise ships that actually runs the most boats just had their last one. But uh, the American Empress runs through the last weekend. I think it's the day after Thanksgiving. God, that's crazy. So we'll have December, January, and part of February off. Wow, I think I see their ads on, um, they do like underwriting on Antiques Roadshow. I think I see their commercials for their the river cruises. And, and years ago, like, God, 35 years ago, one of my older brothers worked on, there was a, a company called Exploration Cruise Lines. I think that's what they were called. That sailed, okay. They sailed from Portland to Lewiston and back, I think, once a week or something. It was a much smaller deal. But I remember my parents went on it probably, yeah, 1985, something like that. But I had no idea mm-hmm. that the Dallas is a cruise ship destination. How, how long are the people in town when they get off the cruise ship in the Dallas? They are here really just for one day. Hmm. Occasionally, occasionally they'll dock uh, earlier, like late in the evening um, where it's still light outside, and some of them will get off and wander town. But what they do the next day is hop on, hop off. They run about three buses, uh, uh, and they'll run them to all the museums in the area, and then usually they do some type of an excursion. So out here in the Dalles, the closest um, very interesting thing, I guess, is the Mary Hill Museum. Yeah. And yeah. the art museum, fantastic art museum. Yeah. And so they will run an excursion out there. But other, otherwise, they drop people off at our front door either <laughs> every, 15, every 15 minutes or every 30 minutes. Wow. And, and are you, like, leading tours and stuff? Okay, go ahead. No, so, so you're giving tours of, to these groups of people? We are. Wow. And is it what's All the what's long. the what's the demographic? Are these are these mostly Americans or are they people from overseas or and what's the roughly age? I'm just curious. I mean, we're kind of going off on a tangent. I'm curious. I I would say that the 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 age the probably the the average age maybe is 65. Okay. Um, you get you get occasionally somebody comes in and if they're not wearing their lanyard and you're not sure if they're from the cruise ship or not, <laughs> um, you know they look like they're about 35 and you're like, uh, are you from the cruise ship? And they're like, oh. <laughs> You're quite young. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, we've, we've had, um, you know, from, from I mean, there are people, there are grandparents that bring their children and their grandchildren. So you'll have 20 years old here, but that's, that's pretty rare. That's pretty and then, cool. uh, but I would say, you know, the average is going to be from 55 to maybe 85. Okay. And, and, um, and as far as the, the first, uh, in 2019, Obviously, prior to COVID, uh, we were getting a, a lot of Europeans. I mean, and I would say uh, on at least every cruise, there were several Europeans or somewhere, somewhere from outside of the United States. This year, it's mostly been, I mean, increasingly, we're seeing a few more, but that's still pretty rare. I mean, to the point that when they get here, I say, oh, please go sign our guest book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, that's amazing. Because, again, I'd seen those ads on uh, or those underwriting announcements on Antiques Roadshow and assumed it was much smaller scale than what you're talking about. But that's that's a great way oh, to be yeah. pumping tourist dollars up through that entire, the whole stretch of the Columbia and the snake. That's awesome. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll give you one quick, quick story is the day what, that we had to officially open. We got the building in two, six, 2016. Um, we had to be open. Uh, by uh, by basically by the end of 2018, 
And so um, we got we got two extensions to get us to 2018. And so finally, uh, the night before we were officially opening, and it was it was on our website. We we weren't ready at all for it at all, but like, hey, we got we got to open, right? I mean, we got contract the city, and we we basically pulled an all nighter. We had like ten people here working, cleaning, making it look as good as we could. And at three o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden there's this tapping, and if you can imagine what a key sounds like on a big glass window this this kind of very high-pitched like kind of noise tapping on a window and we're kind of like what is that noise and i go run up to the front door and i and i see this this asian man standing there and so i open the door and i said uh hi can i help you <laughs> and he said uh he goes he kind of looks at me and he kind of points down and goes um neon museum and i i said I, yes. I said, you know, it's three in the morning. We're not open. Oh, okay. Oh, I wow. said, I come in. I said, no, 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 <laughs> we're, we're not open. And I said, you can come back tomorrow. And he goes, when do you open? I said, 10 o'clock. <laughs> so he, he leaves. He, I know he leaves. And I suddenly go back to what I'm doing thinking, did I just send that guy away? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, like, right. <laughs> and, and, and then all of a sudden, at 6 a.m., we hear that same tapping on the window again. So I go up, and I open the door, and I you know, well, come on in. And I said, so, so why are you here? He goes, I come to see Neon Museum. Wow. And I said, no, why, are, why, are you, why did you come to the Dow? And he goes, I come to see Neon Museum. Wow. And I said, where are you from? He goes, I'm from Taiwan. Wow. And I said, okay. I said, so why are you in the United States? He goes, I want to be customer number one. Wow. That is, so that, I mean, that is the fanatic. I mean, I, I've always loved neon, but I've never been that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's saying a lot. I actually flew to Milan, Italy in, in uh, January of 2020 um, to go to, a, a, to Milan to a, a, an amazing exhibit. I've never been a fan of neon art, but there was an absolute amazing exhibit that took place there and um so yes and so i no, that's, yeah i so that's I've, had the, I've had the opportunity to go to france multiple times really with, with the birthplace of neon and on that trip i took advantage and, and went to london as well and on one of those trips to to europe didn't you bring back a really important artifact i did can you talk um, about are you are you legally allowed to talk about it <laughs> i I'm, I'm legally allowed to talk about it. <laughs> what what was it everything up <laughs> Um, so, um, I had for years, um, just heard of an unusual piece of neon in Europe. And so I, you know, I looked on and off over and over again, not always knowing exactly what you're looking for. And, um, ultimately, you know, just through a lot of sometimes, you know, dumb luck and other times, you know, just getting really serious, I was finally able to locate George Claude, who in his lifetime was a, a French physicist often referred to as the French Thomas Edison. Uh, he was the founder of the company Air Liquide, which not everybody knows Air Liquide, but they are they were the refiner of, of most oxygen, neon, uh, most of the gases, and the rare gases. And so he founded the, the basically the way to, uh, by compressing and uncompressing air, that they could turn air into a liquid. So Air Liquide, Air Liquid, Lind Gas, and uh, so I'd heard about an unusual piece of neon somewhere in Europe. And after just years of searching, I finally uh, located the tube, and it was his 1911 patent tube. 
So it's the basically the first piece of neon that uh, was on Earth. That's crazy. Now, is that that must be very valuable? Is it on display there in the museum in the Dallas? It, it is on display here at the museum in the Dallas. Wow. Yep. There, there's three three pieces that are probably my, I, I guess, triptych, if you will. Um, there's that piece. Uh, we have another piece that, um, as George Claude started selling franchises, they were called Claude Neon Signs, um, and they had multiple different names. Sometimes to be electrical products, Claude Neon, etc. But uh, we have uh, one uh, the only known uh, storefront sign, um, early Rippleton, early 1920s uh, style of construction, and it says Claude Neon Signs. And then lastly, I have a new or a window from uh, New York from probably the first, if one of the very first neon sign manufacturers under Claude Neon licensing. And it's their original storefront window, their first piece of neon, it says uh, Russell Electric Claude Neon, uh, an early stock certificate and early sales. But so three kind cool. of pretty cool things all together. Very cool. Well, you're listening to Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM and streaming live at space101fm.org. Our guest tonight is David Benko. He's founder of the National Neon Sign Museum in the Dalles, Oregon. Uh, we had a guest on a couple episodes ago, a reporter from the Vancouver Sun, a guy named John Mackey, who's written a lot about the neon there along Hastings in Vancouver. And I, okay, I, yep. Yeah, and I was curious, you know, is, a, I mean, is there a particular, is the, can you identify a date or a particular sign or a particular company that first brings neon to, you know, whether it's B.C. or Washington or Idaho, Oregon or the Northwest 100 years ago? Is there, is there a first that's been identified or, or is there, do you have a guess about what the earliest neon sign was here in this region? Well, so, um, no, not necessarily. I would say that. Um, I've never tried to necessarily identify what that would be. Mm -hmm. But as far as companies, as far as companies are concerned, the two biggest companies in that day were a federal sign company and electrical products. And I know that electrical products had a very early presence here, even in the 1920s. I own a sign that I got many, many, I mean, 35 years ago, probably, um, out of eastern Washington, and it's about six foot tall and maybe 25 feet long, and um, it's a fashion shop. It came out of Wenatchee very early, um, also with a Claude Neon tag on it, so, you know, that's a very early sign. I don't, a lot of times that kind of stuff is, uh, is always... I always question often, you know, authenticity of when somebody says this was the first thing. Sure, sure. But for many, many, many years, um, the story mm. of of Earl C. Anthony's Packard dealership in Los Angeles has always come up as this was the first piece of neon in the United States, and um, I always disputed that. And uh, enough history has now come to sort of rewrite that, but I. I don't have anything to replace it with. <laughs> and um, I, I actually have uh, some earlier stuff. Of, in, in fact, adverti- magazine advertisements of smaller items. So, I mean, the question is, is it a sign? Is it a smaller item? But there were a lot of smaller items with neon inside of them that were really more in the team in the United States. So considerably earlier. And... You know, I know things take – today, if something new comes out, probably it's worldwide within a week. And uh, back then, of course, things took longer. 
But if a, if a neon sign that stopped people in their footsteps in 1911 in Paris, it's not going to take 12 years for it to come to the United States. Yeah, that seems to make sense. Um, yeah. And people often say that there's sort of a special connection or, or neon has special resonance here in the Northwest because of the weather. I think Vancouver claims to have more neon sign per capita or some, there's some, some claim that makes them be the capital of neon in the Northwest or in, the, in, the, in North America or something. In the travels you've done around the world, around the country, around this, this region, is it, I mean, can you sort of confirm or debunk this, the notion that neon, there's more neon here than other parts of the world, other parts of the country? Uh, no, I think on the West Coast, there definitely is. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Young Electric Sign Company, um, Federal Heath, were down in the Los Angeles and, uh, and, and Nevada. So, of course, a lot of the, the crazy uh, Las Vegas signs, you know, are, are basically produced by, by Federal or, or um, you know, either any one of those companies. Mm-hmm. And so, as far as that, I mean, that's where you get the Neon Boneyard in Las Vegas from. But, um, you know, even, as you said, Vancouver, Canada, I mean, I, I think of the, the Ovaltine Cafe, which has always been, I mean, yeah. I've loved that since, you know, I was in my teens. Yeah. And the 2400 uh, Motel as well. So, I mean, I think you, there's just some pretty, they have been able to hang on to the, some of their stuff, um, unlike, I think, Amer- in America and maybe even more so on the West Coast, we tend to um, continue to... I mean, I mean, we evolve, but yeah. evolving, and sometimes that means taking stuff away. I'll tell you, this is a funny story. I was born in September of 1966, and in September of 1966, the Electric Sign Association, the National Electric Sign Association, NISA, started a program called Scrap Old Sign, <laughs> and it was to basically fight against urban blight. And so they were paying their employees on Saturdays to go and spend the day taking down, you know, basically derelict signs. And I have a photograph that is, that is, I mean, I'm going to say the thing six to 10 foot tall, 20 foot wide and probably 50 feet long of signs with bulldozers driving over them and crushing them all. So, and, and people are like, you know, they're like, oh, that must kill you. And I'm like, well, I mean, you you got to look at it from both points. As a collector, um, we appreciate things more when they're not around anymore, right? And 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 they and, and I guess as a collector too, they become worth more. We appreciate them more, and they become more more valuable because those, you know, there's I've seen pictures of stuff that is that has been crushed. It's long off the world, and it's. One of the most amazing signs I've ever seen. It doesn't exist anymore, but there's there's a certain beauty in that. I mean, if everything existed that existed, we wouldn't appreciate it the same way. Well, you're getting really philosophical on me here, David. Boy, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I always was smarter than you, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, or at least I, I talk a lot. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned 1966 because um, I was been thinking about this. Um, Obviously, there's multiple neon museums now. People collect them. People there's you know purists and there's people who are experts who can talk about the different kinds of gas and appreciate the aesthetics of the can, you know, the sign and the actual tubes and everything. And I imagine when they were new, they were very exciting. And like you said, they captured people's attention in Paris in 1911. And this you know this sort of apocryphal story about the Packard dealership being the very first that that sort of it's, it grips people's imagination. But to get to 1966, where they're tearing all these derelict signs down. Seems like neon has gone through some different sort of ups and downs as a, in terms of being appreciated or being maybe maybe despised is too strong a word, but being sort of 
seen as almost um, an indication of a kind of a seamy business or a, a kind of a sleazy kind of thing, like it's a bar or a strip joint or something. It's like a neon sign isn't no good respectable business would have a neon sign. Was was that the case in the in the 60s? Was there sort of a, a, a dead era where the, some of these companies dried up or the or the business at least dried up for some of these companies? Uh, yeah, I would I would say that for sure. I, I like I started in the sign industry in 1988, and I learned from an old old timer, and he had started just he started on the GI Bill, <laughs> and so really the, the the heyday of neon really was through the 20s and even into the 1930s. I mean, people are always like, well, that was the depression. Neon signs were still popular in that era because people had to advertise. Yeah. You know I mean, that was a big part of that era. And then following that era, you know, obviously there was it, it kind of crashed going into the war and then it was dead for quite a while. But following the war, one of the things that really started changing the, the history of neon was Lexan. And, you know, the, the airplanes that had the big bubbles underneath of them with the machine gun guy inside of it? Yeah, B-17s and B-29s and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, the, so actually, Lexan came into the sign industry really starting in the late 40s, but really big time in the 50s. And uh, so I actually I have a very, very early Lexan um, sign uh, that was from the sign industry and really like in the early 1950s, late 40s era. And so then neon kind of started dying from that. But by the 1950s was probably what, you know, I historically thought of as the heyday, although I, I have way more affection towards the 30s now. Yeah. But the 50s were sort of that very glitzy, you know, when people think of happy days and the, just that era. Yeah. And, uh, and but then the old man I learned from, and like I said, he learned on the GI Bill, said that during the 1960s, Things rapidly, after Lexan and, and Plexiglass came in, rapidly started to decline. And he said if he even touched neon once a month, it was usually a repair through the entire 60s and the entire 70s. Yeah, and that, so it was, yeah, interesting. It was virtually okay. dead. Huh. It, was, it was virtually dead. And so, last, you know, the era that you, know, you and I more grew up in is, is in the 80s. And what kind of came back, and I, I just got, I always say, like, you know, think of Madonna, Cindy Lauper, and, and MTV, mm-hmm. was what, what they called neon, and it was clothes. I mean, when we were in high school, um, people wore bright pink, you know, socks or hats or yellow, and, you know, <laughs> and, and, that, and they, they called it neon. But that kind of sparked this interest. And, you know, think of downtown Seattle. Um, you know, there were several, like Western Neon, which is still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, you'd see pink flamingos and martini glasses and cactuses and all that kind of stuff in that era. And that kind of just started creating this resurgence of neon. And, I mean, things ebb and flow. I mean, I think there'll be a day where neon falls out of fashion again and it comes back. But um, I think as far as the collectability of it, it's pretty solid now. I mean, the, like, signs are sort of doing phenomenal things at auction that's interesting you know? yeah that's and and you said you started collecting a long time ago i remember you telling me stories about like one of your collecting trips like where you'd get a car and sort of head east can you sort of tell me is there one particular trip you went on where you just hit some really amazing gems and you still remember the specific signs and where you found them and that kind of thing uh, or is it all kind of a big neon blur <laughs> it, 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 of a neon blur and you know when you start getting up or upper in, in your 50s you start everything becomes blurry <laughs> so, so you just wait a couple years 
Yeah, we'll, um, we'll have, we'll have a, a Ben Franklin Elementary reunion. You can tell me that. Now, I, I do remember you telling me, I think you, you would go pretty far east, if I recall, like into North Dakota uh, even? Oh, no, no, no. I, I would go I, early on, um, starting, at, starting really in the, in the early 80s, um, I was driving to the East Coast. I mean, I was going, we were going sometimes to Pate, Texas. We would go to the Hershey Swap Meet, buying and selling gas pumps, and neon signs, you know, along the way. Wow. And, so, I mean, at one point I, I had 100 gas pumps. Uh, <laughs> today, today I, I, you know, I think today I only have maybe nine, eight or nine gas pumps. But you know, I know that sounds like a lot. Of That's like. I promise that... you. Uh, what, what, I will, what I will say, though, is, I, I mean, I, I have a unique, um, not not unique to the world, but I mean, kind of because I, I started collecting so young, you you sort of learn so much stuff from you know eight years old to by the time you're 18 years old, um, you, you've seen a lot of stuff and you understand <laughs> this is really rare. This is you know kind of cool. I could buy this and flip it, and you know, um, and huh. so as much as possible over the years. I always tried to save if I could. And when I came home with a trailer and truck full of stuff, I would say, you know, I really need to keep these three things. And you sell the rest and you make a little bit of profit and keep a couple of things. And so I've been very lucky um, that many, many, many times I've been able to, to just keep some of the really rarest things, which, um, I mean, I've got, I, I'm very, very lucky to have uh, some things that I own today. And it's just, you know, it was a lot of hard work. Um, you know, like I said, going going on the road for a month. I mean, I'd, I'd be on the road for a month. As I got a little older, I was buying a lot more stuff from people across the country. And I, whether I was lazier or just they didn't have as much time, I would oftentimes fly to. So I'd, like, say, fly to New York, get a Penske truck, and I'd have a, <laughs> the shortest path to drive my way back to Washington. Wow. This sounds like a reality show. Did you ever, did you ever pitch anybody on doing the reality show, like the Neon Warriors or something, or the Neon whatever? That would I, I'd watch that show. I don't watch much TV, but well, I would tune in for that. Yeah, I don't watch TV at all, but um, I think a lot of people, because on tours, the number one people ask me about is, oh, have you heard of the American Pickers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, I've read yeah. <laughs> Now, um, there's so many neon signs around that I know. I know Seattle neon signs pretty well. I mean, um, uh, with the guy from Jay Blazek and I led a couple of neon bus tours about, God, I think it was in 2003 now. So what's that, 18, 19 yeah. years ago? Yeah, that's a long time ago. But yeah. the, the, some of the ones, the big ones that, that we would always drive by on that tour, regardless of other ones that we looked at that might not be around anymore, the Bardall sign, the um, Pink Elephant, and the uh, P.I. Globe. That's my favorite. That's one of my favorite signs on earth. Which one? The PI Globe. And, and the PI Globe. Do you, so how do you feel when you drive by it? Have you driven by it recently and seen how bad it looks? I, I haven't. But, I, well, yes. I've seen it in the daytime, and I've seen how bad it looks. And the old man I learned from used to work on that sign. And so, you know, he had really great stories about how it's got tires inside of it that, you know, or help, you know, help the, the rotation of it. But, um, no, that would be... That would be something that you know. I I don't know why. Seems like uh, seems like city, Seattle's a city with money. Why they couldn't uh, you know come up with some money to uh, fix that sign? But that's not going to be a that's not going to be a small price tag. Yeah, I think officially it belongs to Mohai now. I think Hearst Corporation gave it to Mohai, and I don't know if they okay. gave them any money to maintain it. I know it was sort of a. 
that when I was working at Mohai 15, 16 years ago, I guess that was still that was in the works at that point. We Mohai had a close relationship with the PI for the like the last, you know, from the I don't know, at least from the 40s to the to the 2000s because we had board members like the publisher from the PI was typically a board member for the museum. So there was really close ties, but it doesn't seem to have done much to uh, help the poor old PI globe. Um, yeah. I haven't been by the Bardall sign lately, but what I always loved the Bardall, a couple of reasons I always really loved the Bardall sign was that the fact that during the day it was kind of invisible, that shape of the front of the car that would, with the headlights and everything, yep. like, it looks like a 53 Chevy maybe, but it would, you couldn't see it during the daytime, but at night there it was, that shape of that front of that car. And then yeah. maybe, maybe you know the correct term for this, but as the lights would change, it made some kind of a big clunking sound, like it was a big solenoid or something something flipping when the switch would flip to make it go through its different animation of the uh, the different things, like add to your car, add to your oil, add Bardol, whatever. There'd be this big ka-chunk, ka-chunk. It was the only sign I knew in town that had it that had a sound, too. Yeah, I, I you know, I don't know that there's a term for that because it's, <laughs> it's probably fairly unique to the ka-chunk. <laughs> <laughs> Um, are there now? You 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 had a business, a neon business, if I recall correctly, in the like the Portland, Vancouver area for a long time. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, and I yes, I've been, to, so I've been I, started, I started making neon in 1988. Moved down to the Vancouver, Washington area, um, and and I we actually had a I opened the first neon sign museum in the in the United States in 1988 <laughs> um, in, in a small town, Camas, Washington. So we were there from. No, wait, from 98 to 02. Okay. Uh, no, excuse me. Yeah, from, and I'm getting, you know, from how, old, how old are you, David? No, just kidding. Not, yeah, I know. I told you. I, I, from, 19, from 1994 to 02, okay. um, we were there in, in Camas, and it was called Rocket City Neon Advertising Museum. And so that was kind of cool. But from 98 to 02, I was the curator at the American Sign Museum in Cincinnati. And they were a brand new startup project at the time. Huh. And so my really then was to kind of help them start the front end of building their collection. And our original deal was that I would help them from 98 to 02, perhaps renew my contract after that, but we would never move to Cincinnati. And then four months later, or four years later, he said, uh, okay, you need to move to Cincinnati now. And yeah. I'm like, hey, you remember our deal. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the, but during that time, during that time, when I was with the American Sign Museum, also a uh, young electric sign company in Las Vegas was was wanting to scrap their collection, um, and it's it's a long story. I'm not going to get into it, but uh, <laughs> ultimately, you know, we said, you know, Tom Young was still, Tom Young Senior was still alive, and we said, you know, Mr. Young, you you can't scrap these, um, and we're not necessarily interested in them, but they need to be saved. So um, Oscar Goodman was the mayor at the time. Richard Hooker and Nancy Diener down in Las Vegas were there. And so a transition of all of those signs was made at the time, I think, to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And then now that's what is really called the Neon Boneyard. Oh, got it. And okay. so, that, you know, that was worth saving. Again, I mean, they're cool signs. I'm just not like a Las Vegas. I mean, I'm not even like I wouldn't want to have like the the Seattle Neon Sign Museum or whatever. I mean, I, I sort of am more of an international. And yeah. I, I like logos, and I don't care where they're from in the United States, and that's, you know, that's America, you know. And, um, you know, we talked about the PI being one of your favorites. Do you have other favorites around the Northwest that either in Portland or Boise or Spokane or, I don't know, along the I-5 or I-90 corridor that people might recognize? them? Do you get around enough to kind of have favorites that you know are still standing in places like Bellingham or Yakima or that kind of thing? 
Um, I mean, yeah, you know, Yakima has some pretty cool signs um, for sure that are still up and kind of still being maintained. There's a sign I haven't seen it in years. I believe it's in Centralia, and it's a butterfly. Oh, on a- chop suey! Yeah. I I saw that sign. Yeah, it, it's been restored. It's been made a landmark. It's in really good shape. Okay. They, they, yeah, I saw it about a year ago or maybe two years ago. It's it's in really yeah, good shape. That- that I, I mean, I, I was watching that from starting in you know the eighties as well. And so, <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, I mean, but, but there, you know. So here's the thing: is as a collector, um, I've never been as interested in one of one off signs or like, hey, this is a landmark from Seattle and it's really important, and it was a one off sign. I've I've more always collected, and I mean, I as a buyer and seller too, um, you know, there's. You look at the value. Um, I mean, I'm very passionate about signs. And at the same time, um, most of the signs I have are probably internationally recognized logos. Got it. You know, okay. like like a Coca-Cola sign or a Chevrolet Cadillac, you know, Buster Brown, Elsie the Cow. Yeah. And so um, so a lot of times those one-off signs, I, I've, I've volunteered at times to help restore some of the landmark signs. I mean, in Portland, I've worked on, on a bunch of, uh, of the signs here. Which ones, on a lot have, of them. which ones in Portland have you worked on? Well, uh, the Roseway Theater, the Aladdin, the Laurelhurst. Um, Mc, well, I built a sign on the McMenamin's Crystal Ballroom. Right on. Uh, <laughs> and, um, oh, I mean, again, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> Ever touched the, what, what about the Jans, What about the Jansen Swimmer? <laughs> Uh, you know, the Jansen fiberglass girl, um, there were two of those, and I stored one of those fiberglass years or signs for eight years. <laughs> and we were act- we were going to actually put a 16-foot-long fiberglass dive girl. We were going to put it on the side of the building, and just the whole timing of it, everything didn't work out. And they ended up shipping that thing off to da- the Daytona Speedway. Okay. Which makes no sense. <laughs> what about so, the travel by train letters on top of the railroad station? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, but yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, here's kind of a dumb. This is a dumb question. Why do you love neon? Why have you devoted so much of your life and time and energy to neon? Um. Boy, that's you know that's that's an interesting kind of question. Um. I mean, I honestly, <laughs> I I was collecting. You know, like I said, I, mean, I was collecting pretty heavily stuff at eight years old. And, um, you know, gas pumps as well. Gas pumps, neon signs, etc. Always big stuff. I've never collected little stuff. And, um, you know, maybe this, there's, uh, I think one of the very, very, very first interviews I ever did, and it was probably 25 years ago, um, I, I just talked about the draw of the light. Um, and, oh, actually, I know in about... Five years ago, I did a similar. I said the similar thing, which is neon signs kind of draw you like a bug to a zapper. And, yeah. then, and I said, didn't really say that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but there is that there is this real draw to it. I mean, I think if you, you know, if, if if you're in the night and it's dark and you start seeing a light up ahead, you're sort of drawn to that light. And I mean, I think we are drawn to light as humans. Hmm. And so there's just something about the glow of neon and it's not just a white light i mean generally you've got some you know pretty attractive you know blue green pink yellow yeah, yeah. kind of drawn, and, and it's something that um you know we 
you know, I think I think human humankind, human people are are drawn. To, I mean, animals, I think, are drawn to it. Yeah, I think that's you know? true. I, I, you know, the interesting interesting the the difference between the one off signs and the more internationally recognized logos kinds of things because I think I'm more drawn to the one offs like and the way they they indicate to you without even thinking about it that you're in a particular spot. Like for instance, before they got rid of the Battery Street Tunnel and replaced it, you know, and tore down the viaduct and everything. That southbound drive on the on the uh, 99 before he dove into the Battery Street Tunnel, you'd look up, you see the elephant car wash, and you knew you knew exactly where you were. There was just no question in your mind. And same thing with that Bardall sign up there, you know, on north on 15th, you know, heading up across the Ballard Bridge, heading up to you know, I don't know, who knows where you're headed, Blue Ridge or something, and you see that big Bardall sign, and you know exactly where you are. Um, and the PI Globe, especially its original location right there on you know the corner of Wall Street and Denny, yep. but on, but even on the waterfront, it was there long enough and illuminated and rotating long enough on the waterfront where that became almost like a you know just almost like a specific beacon saying here's here's downtown Seattle, here's the waterfront. And the, I think the Jansen Swimmer or that uh, was it an Oregon Trail sign, a Pacific Trail. There's some Oregon silhouette of an Oregon silhouette of Oregon sign that's right in downtown Portland. That they they yep. I think they yep. modified it. It used to have a brand name, but now it just says Portland on it or something. Yeah, anyway. now it says I think made in Portland, yeah. and uh, it used to say um, I think White Stag. White Stag, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, so yeah. I I, yeah. I like those one-offs and those specific ones, and though I really used to like the on the old express lanes entrances where they had the neon um, open or closed, green or red um, for the yeah. express lane entrance. And yeah. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't if it's if it's enclosed and protected from the weather. Isn't like a neon transformer in a neon tube pretty low maintenance and can last a really long time? You know, it, it, it can. Um, you know, there there is there is some neon. Um, in fact, we play a movie here at the museum, and in the in the video, he says should be good for fifty years. And I always say, you know, I kind of dispute that, and it's not <laughs> because because they couldn't last much longer than that. Um, and, and I'll tell you. Um, I have always given, since 1988, I've always given people a 20-year guarantee on their neon, and I've only ever had one person call me at 18 years, and I actually drove all the way from Vancouver to Everett, picked up her two, repaired it for her for free, and gave her another 20-year guarantee because it's the only time it's ever happened. Nice. And so to me, there was you know something amusing about that, but um, what, 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 what you're going to see is the very, very early Claude Neon electrodes that were made really in the United States in the, by the early 1920s, is those things really only had a copper electrode, just a pure copper electrode, um, and then glass beads wrapped around a copper wire to basically be the insulation from the copper to the glass. And so there's really nothing inside of that that, that can start breaking down or putting any kind of impurity into it. And now today, the electrodes that we have, you know, obviously, um, they're not built to the same standard like mm -hmm. a lot of stuff today is. And so over time, the mica inside of them can start breaking down. The, the coatings that they put on the electrodes can start breaking down. And there will be some outgassing with inside the tube, which then slowly starts to basically make the gas have an impurity inside of it. I see. I see. If you will. Yeah. So, you know, that's. And, and, you know, a, probably a good sign man would tell you uh, most businesses don't last more than 20 years. So, <laughs> and, and, and in fairness, in fairness, most businesses that do last more than 20 years probably have the foresight that you need to kind of change, modify, and update your image 
on a 20-year basis anyway. I like that. I mean, most, most businesses will kind of modify their logo, even if it's just a tweak. Um, they generally do so that you kind of look fresh and modern. Yeah, that makes sense. The um, yeah. One of the things, uh, when I was working at Mohai, um, I had a call from a, a woman one day. I can't remember what it was this was about, but this was been about probably in around 2000, maybe 2001. And she said, I don't know why she was calling, but she's complaining about something. And she said, yeah, I've never liked that museum since they covered up my father's name. And at this point, I was doing fundraising and marketing. And I was like, wait a minute. Tell me, what, what, why, why, who was your father and why did, why did they cover up his name? And she said that at the old Mohai, this is the one that's since been torn down, okay. the original entrance was on the north south side of the building um, until they built 520. So Mohai was built in 50, 1952, and 520 came through about, eh, I think about nine years, ten years later. And so they had to completely reorient the entryway of the museum. And so the front entrance just got sort of boarded over. They left the little covered walkway there, but they also left in place a big, giant wall, this woman said, that had all these names in it. And it was right there by the front door and, you know, thanking all the donors who had, who had donated to build that museum back in, you know, the late 40s, early 50s. And I said, yeah. okay, I'm going to look for your father's name. I'll, I'll call you back if I can find it. And so I went up to where the old entrance was. They'd kind of rejiggered it around. And it wasn't, you know, the museum, at this is, the museum was 50 years old at this point. We knew we were going to be moving someplace else. So it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like in super sharp condition. But I found this big closet where a pipe organ had been installed sometime in the 70s or the 80s. And I could see through the parts of the pipe organ a glowing, like a turquoisey color, and a bunch of these names, like etched into, I don't know whether it was lu- um, some kind of um, lucite or some kind of clear plastic material from the 1950s, okay. right? And I could see like the Milk Drivers Union and the, you know, the Chinese American League and stuff. And I couldn't see this, this, this woman's father's name. But I called her back and I said, hey, I found the big donor wall. It's still there. And the weird thing was the light was still on. I mean, there was, it was backlit with neon tubes and it was still glowing. Really? It had been covered up for at least several decades, maybe, maybe for 50 years, maybe for 40 years at that point. But yeah. we, ended up, we ended up taking it apart. And I say we, I mean, it was our exhibit staff. They moved, that, moved the parts of the pipe organ out of the way and they got that wall, took it apart. It was something like six panels, had about a thousand names on it. And they moved it up to the, the, you know, the, the quote-unquote new entrance, which had been the entrance since like 1962. And so for the museum's birthday, which was on February 15th, 2002, we unveiled the donor wall back in place. And that, cool. that, I can't remember if the woman who had called to complain about her father's name being covered up had come on the actual anniversary when we unveiled it. But it felt so cool to have that thing restored and in, in, you know, back in place. But um, even though the neon was working and everything, Jay Blazek kind of updated the transformer because it was a 50-year-old transformer at that point. But it okay. looked, it neon, the neon looked so good backlighting that big, thick, you know, turquoise-painted area with these names etched into it. It was, it was really cool anyway. So, um, Well, David Benko, you've been very generous with your time tonight. So if people want to find out more about the National Neon Sign Museum in the Dallas, Oregon, what's the, what's the website? Where do they, how do they find more out about your organization? Um, it is just actually org, And you said you're closing for the season soon? We will. Um, so o- over the winter, I'm going to be here working on a bunch of new displays and, and just we're bringing, opening up a whole new floor in the museum. Uh-huh. So I will often be here. And I would say primarily on, you know, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, if somebody is, <laughs> is in the area or, you know, in Portland and they want to come out, if they want to write to info at National Neon Sign Museum, uh, they could do that. And right we will 
certainly try to accommodate people. Um, in fact, when I'm building displays, I always like it when people come by because you kind of see the reactions and the comments that they make. So Very cool. um, that's definitely something I would be open to. In fact, you should come down. So e um, email, email first. You don't have to tap on the window with your key. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, you know my phone number, so you can just call. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so uh, but really, I mean, um, what I but I will tell people definitely look at the weather because the the Dallas is a definite four season town. I mean, it you'll get some one hundred degree days during the summer, and we'll get usually at least a week of sometimes you know twelve inch inch uh, eighteen inch snow during the winter. So, wow. uh, but 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 then we have you know most of the rest of the year, you know, we got pretty pretty much uh, probably nine months of really good, really good weather. Yes. And so. lots of cool historical stuff around the Dalles, all through that part of the Columbia Gorge, too. I mean, you can make, oh, it, make a trip of it in the summer. So, all right. Yeah, da absolutely. David Benko, it's really nice, uh, to, it's really nice to talk to you. What's that? Well, okay. I was going to say from the Discovery Center Museum here to the Fort Dalles Museum, Mary Hill Museum, um, it's even in Hood River, the WAM, Western Aviation and Automobile Museum, is pretty fantastic. So there's, there's some really great museums out here. And just a really good history. Oh, and the last thing I'll tell you is uh, we, um, about about three and a half years ago, I pitched to the city when we were just brand new, opened here, doing a project where it's called Waldog. And it's, they've been doing it for about 30, 30 years, almost always on the, on the East Coast. And uh, we had, the last weekend of August of this year, uh, we had 300 sign painters. Pay their own way from around the world, took a week off work, and all we did was, I think, fed something like 4,200 meals. And in, and in uh, four days, start to finish, we painted 15 enormous uh, murals in this town from one, one end to the other, kind of on historic, historical topics and people from this area. So uh, they're pretty fantastic. They're very uh, crossed between historic-looking murals and modern advertising kind of murals. So um, that's another pretty cool thing. So we, we were lucky. I, I pitched it to the city in February 2019 and then kind of threw it out there and the city embraced it. And uh, so it's a pretty cool, it was pretty exciting um, and extremely stressful thing. I bet. Sounds like you guys have a pretty strong Main Street organization down there and they're doing really smart stuff to, to uh, kind of increase cultural tourism and heritage tourism because that's 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 awesome that's a great place to have that sort of stuff all right yes, um, absolutely. wonderful david benko he's the founder of the national neon sign museum in the dallas oregon and i've known him since 1973 or 1974 so i'll see you on the playground at ben franklin sometime in a nice snowstorm okay, you, you can yell at me, me again let me, you let me know when we're going to meet there and i you know i can't thank you enough um i was been it's been an honor to be uh, on the radio with you i think this is my first ever um, I've been on a television number of times, but this is the first real radio kind of thing. So uh, I was a little nervous because, you know, you never know what I'm going to say live. <laughs> That's why we do it. That we love the show. Anyway, we're the only live radio show about Pacific Northwest history. Why aren't there 20 live radio shows about Pacific Northwest history? I don't want to know the answer to okay. that. But anyway, thanks, David. Have a good okay. evening. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. That's David Benko. He is the president and founder emeritus. No, he's the founder of the National Neon Sign Museum in the Dallas, Oregon. And that almost brings to a close uh, this episode of Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM and streaming live at space101fm.org. Um, 
we will be back next week. We'll have a whole another set of guests looking into interesting aspects of any history of the old Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. Um, we didn't get a chance to play the next installment of the uh, End of the Oregon Trail, the Great Olympia Beer Series from 1946. So maybe we'll play two episodes next week, or maybe you'll, I'll get to stretch an extra week of content by not, uh, not having to come up with something. Because that series, I think, only has seven episodes. I, think, I thought there was eight, but there's only seven, so we have just a couple more to go. Uh, and let's see, I also want to quickly say it's October 30th. We're doing this show live on a Sunday night on October 30th. That's the same circumstances of the War of the Worlds back in 1938. It was broadcast at 5 p.m. Pacific time. People in Concrete, Washington, up in Skagit County, they did actually panic because the power went out just as the aliens were attacking and moving west. But uh, hopefully nobody has panicked listening to tonight's show. I might have panicked a few times before the show begins, but that's that's business as usual for me, whether it's October 30th or any other time of year. So I'm Felix Bunnell for Cascade of History. Uh, appreciate you listening. Please send your emails to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. You can get this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or SoundCloud. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Sunday night on Cascade of History. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.